Good morning. My name's Larry Locke. Uh, if you don't know me, that's okay. I teach business at UMHB. I have loved our Summer in the Psalm series. Have you? We have, right? Yeah, yeah. It's to uh, different preachers and different approaches. It's just been a chance for God to work through all the various giftings that he's provided at Vista. And Psalms is a beautiful book of poetry. It's a beautiful book to, to read on your own. But it also is a book that needs explanation sometimes, isn't it? You know, one can say some very complicated theology in just a few lines of poetry, but when that happens, we need somebody to unpack it for us. So I think it's been a great time of sort of peering into the ocean depths of God's wisdom through this shifting kaleidoscopic lens of these different speakers. And you've no doubt noticed that here at the very end, we've asked Larry to come up and take a turn. I hope you're not overly disappointed after all the cool, hip preachers um, that you've seen. Uh, If you are, refunds are available at the welcome desk. (laughs) Help yourself. Our psalm today is Psalm 91. And like many other texts uh, this summer, it's a famous chapter. Most of you, I suspect, have heard all of it or portions of it before. But before we start, I just want to say that of all the passages that I've been called to preach in my life, This psalm is one of the most difficult. And I just want to be clear this morning that while I'm confident of what I have to bring to you today, I do not have the last word on this psalm. Poetry is hard anyway, right? And I just want um, for us to, to sort of agree together that it's important to approach psalms like Psalm 91 with a great deal of humility Yeah, and to know that after today, we may understand God a little better, but there's still a lot more to learn. So um, with that understanding, let's read it together to remind us all what it says, and then we can jump off the high dive and see how deep we can go in it. Whoever dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands, that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent, because he loves me says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Wow, this is good stuff, yes? There's some bold promises here. But before we bank them, 
maybe we better get some context. Where did this psalm come from? Yeah. Unlike some of the psalms we've read this summer, it doesn't say who authored it. The Jewish tradition, the Midrash tradition, is that it was written by Moses, partly because it follows Psalm 90, which says it was written by Moses, and partly because there's some particular phraseology that's used in uh, verse 14 that really only appears in one other place in Scripture, and that's in the book of Deuteronomy. So the general rules of biblical interpretation would indicate Mosaic authorship. The tradition holds that it was sung by Moses when he first walked into the tabernacle right after they'd built it in the desert. So that would make this kind of a celebration of the unique relationship that God had with Israel and how he had come to dwell right there in the middle of their camp. And Moses and his contemporaries would have been totally bought in on being in God's protection. The ancient Hebrews who first sang this song, they had seen God's deliverance. Yeah. This was the generation that had seen the plague strike down the Egyptians. These were the people for whom God parted the Red Sea. These were the people who at this time are daily surviving on the manna that God provides them in the wilderness. They understood the protection of God in a very experiential way, in a very miraculous way. But it's also a generation that's uniquely vulnerable. They're living off manna in the wilderness because there isn't anything else. They have no walls around their homes to protect them from lions and cobras. They have no walled cities, right, to protect them from their enemies. Presumably, none of them are even trained soldiers, right? If you're the king of Egypt, the one thing you don't do is take all your slaves and arm them and then train them how to fight, right? You don't do that. The experienced section of every one of these Israelites' resume all said the same thing. They all said, slave. If you wanted to get technical, um, they worked in brick-making and construction. Right? That was the one thing that they were all professionals at. That was the one thing that were, they were good at. Well, guess what they're not doing while they're wandering in the wilderness? They're not making bricks. I mean, this is the most useless skill set ever for their particular context. They are the most unqualified people to live in the desert in the history of deserts. And this is an extremely vulnerable people in an extremely hostile environment. This psalm identifies some of the threats that they're facing, the things that are making life scary for them in 1500 BC in the Sinai Peninsula. Things like lions and cobras and pestilence and plague and enemies, right? It makes perfect sense for the psalm to bring out those threats, right? That the threats would come to the top of their anxiety list. So it would seem that the overall theme of the psalm is God saying, I will protect you from those threats. I know you feel vulnerable, but don't worry. I'm going to protect you from all those things that are scaring you. And this interpretation is what's made this psalm so popular throughout history. It's long been recited uh, as a prayer of protection when we face risks. In the London Blitz in World War II, it was referred to as the air raid psalm. Right? People recited Psalm 91 while they were huddled down in the tomb station and the Nazis were, were dropping bombs overhead. 
In medieval Europe, they inscribed this psalm on amulets and they would wear them to try and protect themselves from the plague. Today, soldiers will sometimes carry a, a camo bandana with the words of Psalm 91 embroidered on it or printed on it. Right? This psalm includes strong promises of protection. And when we're feeling vulnerable, that's what we want. We want God's protection. Now, our vulnerabilities are different than the ancient Hebrews had, right? But we still face vulnerabilities. What scares you? Right? When do you need Psalm 91? Do you want to know when I do? There's a lot, actually. Um, but one of the things that scares me the most is when I have to fly over the North Atlantic at night. Right? I know that sounds oddly specific, right? Um, but uh, I teach at UMHB, but I'm also on faculty at Lithuania Christian College, which is right up in northern Europe, right up on the Baltic Sea. And so I wind up flying to Europe once or twice a year. And because of how time zones work, all the flights from the U.S. to Europe almost all leave at night. Yeah? And flying over the North Atlantic in the middle of the night scares me. I appreciate that it doesn't make any sense, right? I'm not nearly as scared, you know, when I fly during the day versus at night. When I'm flying over land, I'm much more relaxed, right? It, it makes no sense, true? I mean, my chances of surviving a plane crash over the ocean versus over the land or in the daytime versus the nighttime are probably about the same, right? You know, approximately zero sort of my chance of surviving. But you know what I do? When that plane starts to shake and the pilot comes on and tells the flight attendants to strap in, you know what I do? I recite Psalm 91. That's what I do. And I'm guessing that you have things that scare you too, just like me. Things that make you feel vulnerable, things that make you feel out of control. Research indicates that 29% of you are terrified of public speaking which is only fractionally less than the percentage of you that are terrified of dying. So that phrase, I'd rather die, is often true, it turns out. 30% of you are afraid of sharks. 39% of you are afraid of nuclear accident. 55% of you are afraid of financial collapse. 58% of you are afraid of someone you love dying. And a whopping 80% of you are afraid of corrupt government officials. I confess it makes me feel a little weird that flying over the North Atlantic didn't make the list, right? Is it really just me? I don't know. But we all have these things that threaten us. And we all want to know, how can I get protection from God from these things that scare me? And if you tell me an amulet with Psalm 91 inscribed on it will do the trick, I'm buying one. Right? I'm not just buying one. I'm buying one for everybody in my family. They'll all get them in their stocking this Christmas. But that doesn't sound like God, does it? I mean, God was never sort of the cosmic vending machine that you could put your credit card in and order up a, you know, a serving of, of protection from sharks or transatlantic flights. So I think we'd all be initially reluctant to interpret this psalm in this way. It's also contrary to our collective experience. We've all known someone who we knew to be a devout Christian, as much as anyone can know that about anyone else, and who didn't seem to receive God's protection. I've known good brothers and sisters who suffered from, from 
cancers and battlefield trauma and head injuries. I've known some who were abandoned by their families, mistreated by their spouses, fired from their jobs for no reason. People whose houses burned to the ground and who contracted illnesses that left them paralyzed. My wife has known people who were killed by violence as they sang hymns in their church. Come on, man. The interpretation of this thing can't be that easy. And it wasn't so easy for the ancient Hebrews either. That same generation who built the tabernacle, they also experienced an attack of snakes. In Numbers 21, God's had a little too much of their grumbling, and he sends venomous snakes into the camp, a number of them die. In number 16, there's a plague that goes through the camp. Aaron has to run out in the middle of it with his censer in order to stop it from progressing over the entire nation. This same people who received the promises suffered from some of those same threats that God promised to protect them from. So what's up with this psalm? How do we think about it? Should I ask for my money back on that amulet that I ordered from Amazon? Now is the time in the sermon when we go to work. One option is to interpret this text as conditional. When verse 1 says, whoever dwells in the shadow of the Most High shall rest in the shelter of the Almighty, that opening phrase acts as a condition on all the promises that follow. Not everyone gets God's protection, only the ones who dwell in the shadow of the Most High. Right? The text doesn't say exactly what it means to dwell in the shadow of the Most High, so that's kind of problematic. But if that's the way you want to interpret the text, then you can just apply whatever of God's commandments you want to in order to make that fit. So we could say in the Old Testament context that, well, if you want to receive God's protection, then you have to observe the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and the dietary restrictions in Leviticus 11 and the sacrificial rules in Deuteronomy 12. If you want the protection of God, you have to earn it by obeying all his commands. And anyone who doesn't obey all the commands, he doesn't get the protection. The problem with this interpretation is that it's an invitation to Phariseeism. Right? The Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were famous for their compliance with the hundreds of rules that had been developed uh, rabbinically from the Old Testament law, and they believed that if they fastidiously kept all of those rules, they would receive all kinds of blessings from God, including his protection. They believed that if any one of them kept all the rules for one day, that that would require God to send the Messiah to save them. Yeah? They had somehow determined that they could compel God to act with their compliance. But... We see Jesus condemning the Pharisees over and over for their focus on the rules and they're missing the whole relationship element of being with God. And any time we make the activity of God dependent on us and our compliance, then we run into the same error. That can't be all there is to Psalm 91 or any other text for that matter. A second way that we can interpret Psalm 91 is to just take it literally. Look, God says what he means, right? His promises are true, and you can rely on them. This interpretation is very liberating. Stop worrying about your compliance. Stop worrying about anything, right? You can do whatever you want because God's promises are unconditional. God's promises are going to be true, and it doesn't matter whether you're obeying the law or not, right? Swim with sharks. 
build a nuclear reactor in your garage, fly over the Atlantic in a one-man ultralight, right? No worries. Now, this, of course, is the devil's interpretation of Psalm 91. In Matthew 4, when the devil is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he says, hey, throw yourself off the roof of the temple. You've read Psalm 91. The Father has promised to send his angels to lift you up. And Jesus, of course, rejects this interpretation. And we should too. Our problem here is that we want to interpret this psalm as a simple means of dealing with the threats in our lives. And yet it's clear we can't just understand it that way. Why do we have so much trouble with this text? Our problem is not the psalm. Our problem is that we fundamentally misunderstand the human condition. We tend to approach life from the standpoint that we are fundamentally okay but for the threats that we face. I would be fine if I hadn't been laid off or if my loved one were not sick. And God, if you will handle that threat for me, I will return to being fine. We've readily identified the problem, the illness, the lion, the cobra, the shark. Right? All we want God to do is to deal with that threat. This is a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are. None of us are fine. None of us are good. None of us can remain in the presence of God. There are two fundamental truths of the human condition that this psalm is addressing. Each one of us is desperately broken by the active sin we are committing this month, this week, this day. And that sin puts us in much greater danger of things than lions and cobras. And the real threat that we face from our sin, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our arrogance, will, is that they will drive us away from the presence of God. That is the true risk we all face. So likewise, the psalm addresses those true truths about our condition in two different ways. God can use the perceived threats that we face, the lions and cobras, to teach us to trust him and become what we were created to be. And God has pledged to remain with us as our ultimate rescue from the true risk that we face, the risk of being without him. This idea that God can use perceived threats in our lives to grow us into what we all should become should not be foreign to us, right? We've all seen this. We see it in our parenting, yeah? Children face all manner of perceived threats. And sometimes as parents, we use those threats that they perceive to help children grow. Is that not true? Is that not what we do? I was in the swimming pool with my grandson this summer. And he was very clear to me that he was facing the existential threat of the deep end of the pool. Now, he had a life jacket on. I don't know what else. You couldn't sink the boy if you had to, right? But he made it extremely clear to me, Papa, I can't go to the deep end of the pool. Don't let me get near the deep end of the pool. He's really worried. And I know, dude, the deep end is not your problem. What you really need 
is to gain some confidence in yourself as a swimmer and learn to trust your swim teacher. That's what you need. And so I point out to him, hey, you see that really cool ball at the other end of the pool? You can have it if you go get it. No, 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 Papa, I can't go to the other end of the pool. But I really want that ball. And so eventually, together, we take on this life-threatening exercise of paddling over to the other end of the pool and securing this ball. And he faces the threat that he fears. And eventually, right, in the process, he learns that if he kicks his feet, he can go places. All parents have seen this, and all parents approach it in more or less the same way, right? We help our children grow by facing their perceived threats, and we commit to being present with them so that they can learn how to live in relationship, which is the real sort of act of of living in life. I work with a lot of college students, and do you know who the defining parent of their generation is? Do you know who it is? It wasn't Robert Kardashian or Beverly Goldberg or Winona Ryder from Stranger Things. No, no, no. It was this little guy. (laughs) Poor Marlon has to travel the entire Southern Ocean to find Nemo, right? All because little Nemo thought it was more important to prove his autonomy from his father than has no idea that the real risk that he's facing is getting too close to a diver who's collecting fish for his aquarium, And Marlon travels hundreds of miles to save Nemo? Yeah, but really to restore the relationship. Our situation is no different from Nemo's. Our situation is no different from my grandson's, right? We don't know what to fear. And we don't understand how God is addressing our needs through Psalm 91. We think the risk we face are sharks or cobras or falling in the ocean. But scripture says otherwise. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Big words, yeah? Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Fear those who can destroy the soul in hell. Be afraid of those who can keep you separated from God. Now, This is where the message goes deep. There are worse things than crashing into the Atlantic. There are worse things than death. When I found out that I had cancer the first time, all these people who were cancer survivors came up to talk to me and tell me their stories. It's not like you were thinking. They were all very cool about it. And there really is this kind of club of people who have survived cancer. And we just encourage each other to, you know, to live strong and to, you know, to make the most of of the life that we've been given. But I've met survivors who told me, you know, if I got diagnosed again, I I wouldn't go through treatment. If I get diagnosed again, just let me die as I am. Yeah. They would rather die than go through treatment again. I don't think that I'm in that camp, but I have no judgment for the people who are. There are worse things than dying. And there are also better things than living. We know this. It is the life lesson 
of Saints Paul and Peter and Stephen. It is the life lesson of all those third century martyrs who chose to be killed rather than to renounce their faith. Martyrs like Irenaeus and, and Plutarch and Perpetua and Felicitas, right? They all knew what it was like to be a friend of Jesus. They knew what it was like to live in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the presence of God was worth more than their lives. They all accepted all manner of horrible deaths in order to remain in fellowship with God. So if we can write our understanding about the fundamental nature of the human experience, that we all need sanctification, and that the real threat that we face is being outside the presence of God. If we can understand those two things about ourselves, then Psalm 91 will start to make a whole lot more sense. Moses sings this song as a celebration of God's decision to come and dwell in their camp. And, and we might not appreciate how unique that was in Moses' context. You and I live in a live in an era where monotheism is, is normative, right? The Christians and the Jews and the Muslims, they all believe in one God. In Moses' time, almost nobody believed that. And the gods that they did believe in were understood to be very limited in terms of their scope and very limited in terms of their geographic influence. One god might be able to help you grow the crops, but you needed another one if you wanted protection in battle. And one god might be you know, quite powerful in this particular valley, but on the other side of the mountain, he's completely useless. So Moses is celebrating a God who could protect you from all the threats that you face. And he's celebrating a God who's not limited by geography. The idea that Yahweh could travel with them was a unique theological category in the ancient world. And if we understand this psalm as a unique celebration of the qualities that Yahweh represented to the Hebrews and the thankfulness they were expressing at his agreement to come and live in their midst. If we can appreciate that, then we are on solid ground for understanding this psalm. To further that understanding, we can look at the psalm's focus on God himself. This is a theocentric psalm, right? Try rereading just verses two to four and placing the emphasis on all the appearances of God in the text. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snail and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You know who's mentioned as an alternative to God as our protector? No one! And this was an important lesson for the ancient Israelites. They had to be taught this, that they were defined by their relationship with God, and that he alone was their protector. And he's the one we want to be tight with because he's the only one who ultimately delivers us. I may want to trust my pilot, right, in that airplane over the North Atlantic, and I hope she's really good. But that's not where my help comes from. The second lesson that we can learn from Psalm 91 is that it's not just about celebrating God's protection from the enumerated threats. And there's quite a list, right? Moses is celebrating the relationship that God has entered into with Israel. In the Old Testament, that relationship between Israel and God is metaphorically described as a marriage, right? The love that a groom has for the bride. And we see the same thing in the New Testament, right? We are described 
We are described as the bride of Christ. And as Christians, we have something even more astounding to celebrate than the Spirit of God coming to live in a tent in our neighborhood, right? We experience God on a much more intimate level than the ancient Hebrews did. God has sent his spirit to tabernacle in us. And in the course of our journey with Christ, his promises take on a particular meaning in light of Psalm 91. We will all face threats. That is our common experience, both for all of us and the Christians for the last 2,000 years. The facing of threats is part of the Christian walk. But we are never abandoned in those threats. God is always present with us. And the threats we face have meaning. One of the purposes of our time on earth is to produce the sanctification that we need to live eternally with God. We are not okay as we are. We are not right and righteous and ready to live in eternity with God. Something has to happen to make those changes that we become what God has called us all to be. And for reasons that you and I don't always understand, threats are sometimes part of those some things. But your father said that he would always be with you. So, Larry, what do I do with Psalm 91? What do I do with the threats in my life? Is it too late to cancel the amulet? These threats, they frighten me. The sharks and the nukes and the financial collapse and the corrupt politicians, for Pete's sake, right? What do I do with those? Well, one thing that we can absolutely do is we can recite Psalm 91. We can pray that prayer. We can read that psalm ourselves, right? But as you, re- as you read it, as you recite it, think about what you're really saying. Father, I'm putting my trust in you. I agree that you are the only thing that can save me. Please use this experience to grow me and sanctify me. And Father, I trust that whatever happens, you will be with me. And your presence in my life, your relationship with me, is the ultimate protection from the ultimate threat that I would be separated from you. I'd like to bless you today now, most of you probably know my forefathers were Ashkenazi Jews. And our Jewish neighbors have a special blessing called the Hagom El that they pronounce on someone who has survived a life-threatening experience. It's often pronounced over a mom who's just given birth, right, to a baby. I mean, that's scary stuff, right? But today, I pronounce it over you, brothers and sisters, Because you have been saved from the most threatening experience possible. You have been saved from life apart from your loving God. You have been chosen. You have been redeemed. And God has given you his eternal companionship. You should probably stand up for this part. While we're young, come on. And, and you needn't sort of look down and close your eyes. That's a perfectly appropriate attitude for prayer. But this is more in the nature of a blessing. So look up and receive the blessing of the Lord. 
Baruch Hatadonai, Eluhenu Melchalam, Hagom El, Lahayavim Tovat, Shegmolani Koltov. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who bestows good things upon the unworthy and has bestowed upon me every goodness. Now is our time to celebrate. Sing, sing like you've Sing like you mean it. Sing like you're in the presence of the Almighty God who has promised never to leave you or forsake you. Reunite with Christ through celebrating communion. And if my description of someone saved and in full relationship with God does not describe you, make it so. Make it so today. Right? There are men and women with orange lanyards at the back who want nothing more than to guide you through that, that experience. The grace and peace of Christ rest on you all.